Welcome to The Spiral Lab, a podcast and YouTube channel where we think a little too hard about art and divergent design. I'm Marta, and today I'll be talking with my friend Gray about maximalism. It's an interior design style trending across the internet right now, but it's often misunderstood and sometimes unfairly maligned. Gray has a completely different style than I do, but we both consider ourselves maximalists for a few deeper reasons that we'll get into. We'll also talk about Kim Kardashian's big beige mansion, the questionable theory that modernist architecture was invented by autistic men, and how minimalism erases women's work and stories. If you'd like to see the art styles and trends we're talking about, you can watch the video of this conversation on our YouTube channel. The link is in the show notes. We both consider ourselves maximalists, but our styles are really fairly dramatically different. You can look at just the two different greens behind us uh, to, to like as evidence. But yes, I would consider myself a maximalist as well. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, my style, I would say, is very like sort of, well, it's very eclectic. Like, I don't think that there is like one specific style that really defines um how I like to decorate my house or design the interior of my house. Uh, I mean, certainly postmodern design is a big part of it. And, um, but I also, I actually like elements of mid-century modern and I love art deco. And so there's like a ton of different styles that come together in my house. What characterizes my style that is really different than yours is these bright, bold, saturated colors. Um, and maybe some more, I like maybe more, I lean more towards sort of, um, sort of postmodern kind of objects and furniture, but still you consider yourself a maximalist as well. So why don't you talk a little bit just about what sort of defines your style and then we can talk about why they're both maximalism and why we, what we think maximalism is. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's a great differentiator. I think, I mean, I I tend to like much more muted color, um, for sure. It's not that I don't like bright color. I, I just think it kind of reminds me of, um, I don't know, like my time in like school, uh, like mm-hmm. elementary school. Um, so yeah, I, and I like autumnal colors, which I think tend to be more muted in general. So, um, but. I consider myself a maximalist mainly because I just like collecting old, uh, like cool items. Like maybe they're beautiful. Maybe they have like purposes that, um, you know, objects we buy these days don't have. Um, I bought a a cranberry scoop recently, an antique cranberry scoop, which we absolutely don't need, but I, you know, put magazines in it. So I just love things that could be like double purposed and, um, tend to collect a lot of things. And, uh, I don't know. I, I like to be stimulated by my environment, but uh-huh. I guess I, I'm, I'm stimulated by those things. I don't need bright color to do it. Although I do like color. Yeah. I mean, the colors in your place are beautiful and, um, it's not like you don't do color. It's just that you don't do the same sort of bright saturated colors that I do. I mean, I think when you're pointing out the 
the differences in the greens in the rooms that we're in is pretty dramatic. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would say about your style that you're, it's also pretty eclectic. Like it's, it's a little bit more muted. Um, mm-hmm. But, but like you have furniture pieces that are from all, like all different eras and you even have some, I mean, the thing about postmodern design, I think, especially furniture design is that it really harks back to like um, art deco and, much earlier eras and i think that maybe in your space you have some um some pieces like that green sort of lozenge ottoman and i think you have a a chair that maybe has like a shell sort of Mm -hmm. uh, do you have a chair that has a sort of curvy um silhouette on the back like the those could be either described as kind of art deco-y or as postmodern design and um but i think that in my house like the curvy things look very postmodern and in your house they look like they're harking back a little bit more um but still i guess my point is simply that your house is very eclectic it's not like there's and you know you also have mid-century pieces and i have mid-century pieces like i don't think that i think that that's sort of in my mind one of the things that really characterizes maximalism is that it's not a specific style it's not a specific era um but that in fact what it is is an eclectic collection you talked about that about collecting stuff yeah um yeah yeah. yeah, and it lends itself to, you know, y- you don't have to continue to purchase from one, uh, you know, right. particular time frame. I mean, there there are obviously things that you do to make things go uh, over time. But, uh, yeah, it allows you to to pick from different time periods. And, and that's cool because if something is meaningful to you, maybe, you know, handed down, uh, you know, by your grandma or something like that, then it, right. it goes, it goes with the stuff that you might've bought from Ikea. Right. Uh, so yeah, I, I just don't want to, you know, have to choose. I want to be able to like, if I see something <laughs> I like, I want to be able to put it in the house. And, um, I think the reason it, it tends to work for me, or I think it works, uh, is because I'm drawn to similar colors, um, drawn to like natural material a lot. So, they do end up kind of, you know, going together, even if one thing was made in, you know, the early 1900s and one thing was made last year. So. Right. Yeah. Right. And yeah. And for me, I think that it's, it is very much a specific color palette um, that I really love. Like I, I talk about Sophie Robinson all the time, but basically I've been like so influenced by her design style and her home because I just, and I don't think I even realized that I loved those colors so much until I um, spent quite a long time watching her decorate her home. But I think also, um, for me, one of the big pieces of maximalism is that it's it tells a story, I think. And I'm really into narrative. You know, I'm really into story. And I want um, I want my... I don't know. It does. It it seems to me that if a room is really spare and there's no story in it, which seems to me a lot of really minimalist rooms, and we can talk about minimalism in a minute, but <laughs> um, 
I just, I don't know how you can feel cozy in a room like that. Like, I don't know. Like I've, I've been, you know, watching a lot of videos about maximalism and minimalism and doing a lot of reading in preparation for this video. Um, and one of the things that people say about minimalism is that, oh, it just feels calm to me when I, you know, I go out into the world and it's so busy and it's so hectic and it's so chaotic. And when I come home, I want to feel calm. And for them, having like a beige room, I mean, doesn't Kim Kardashian talk about that in that like video of her home? I find that there's so much chaos out in the world that when I come home, I want it to be just really quiet and I want everything to feel calming. My whole philosophy of design is very much whatever works for you. And if that's what makes you feel calm, then you should absolutely have like the starkest, most minimal home. But to me, it's the opposite. Like that kind of a room, um, it doesn't, it doesn't feel calm. It feels stark. It feels yeah. institutional. It feels um, depersonalized. And I want... I mean, that's what I feel like when I go out into the world is that um, I there's the there's the risk of losing myself in the busyness of the world and in the impersonality of the world. And when I come home, I want my space to sort of reflect me and my family and my story. Um, I want to be able to look around and see objects and books and collections and pieces of furniture um, that that remind me of that are, of important moments that are meaningful to me. Um, and I guess that's, I guess sort of what I think of as characterizing maximalism is that it's about collection. It's about narrative and about meaning. Yeah. And I think about embracing imperfection too, right? Like I, yes. I see Kim Kardashian's house and I'm like, I, that I, I could try to live like that. It would, it would last for about two seconds. Like there would be, you know, I don't know, a green sweater in the middle of the room and I'd like, I'd freak <laughs> out because like, it's, uh, I, I, and I think this, like having, you know, things that you've kind of curated over time, um, things that might be again, like older, distressed already, like it just allows you to sort of be like, I'm just going to live, um, and not worry too much about, you know, how, how things look, obviously, you know, I like to, to keep things a little cleaner, but, um, you know, if I was living in this like white box, I just, everything would bother me that, you know, is draped over a chair or something like that. So I, yeah, it would, I think <sighs> that's a big part of it, right? Like embracing imperfection, um, allowing yourself to sort of collect these things that, um, yeah, aren't so stark. And, and uh, the other thing is like, it also reminds me of uh, all of the jobs that I've had, like living, like a, in a cubicle, I look at exactly. a screen every day. I want to, you know, take my eyes off of that and, you know, see some, some beautiful things oh. that I like, even if it's just one thing I notice and, you know, in the morning that makes me happy. That's, that's cool. Yeah. I think that, um, I think that maybe part of my own, aesthetic is kind of, I mean, I guess part of my own aesthetic is inspired by the natural world, although you wouldn't necessarily know that um, yeah. when you first walk <laughs> into my house. Um, although the the natural world is really full of quite saturated colors. Uh, we think of it as being really muted, but it's 
it's often not. But what it is, is it's deeply layered and textured. And that's what I really love is um, layers and layers and, um, and lots of textures. I think that when I first started looking at abstract art in museums, as opposed to like um, prints or reproductions, I realized like how, how deeply layered those paintings are. And you could, and I always had this sense that I just wanted to like step into them and lose myself or take a nap <laughs> inside the painting because it, it was almost three dimensional, you know, and there was so much stuff going on behind um, what you would, what your eye would see at first glance. And I feel like that's sort of what I um, want in my home too, is that sense that um, I don't know that it, like, I don't actually like clutter and I don't think you do yeah. either. No. You know, like clutter that's just mess, that's random, that's unintentional. Like I yeah. would say that when my house is at its best, my maximalism is very curated. But I do like it to have the look of a home that's lived in where people do things like drink tea and read books and make art and, you know, sleep in beds that don't always get made. And I don't know, I just, that, that yeah. feels really important to me. If everything was put away or, you know, behind some sort of like white cabinet, I, I, I almost like wouldn't remember uh, to do certain things or like, I wouldn't be inspired to do certain things. Right. Like, um, I mean, half the time, just, the only reason I can get through a project is because it's out in the middle of the floor, right? Like <laughs> if I put it away, it's like gone. I, I'll, it'll never, I'll never come back to it. So yeah, yeah. I think, I think that's true. I, I, this is a, a, an aside, we should come back to where you're going, but I did think it was interesting that you um, think of those uh, modern or abstract paintings. And I, um, like as a way of like layering and, you know, adding color, I actually think of, um, when I see abstract paintings, I often see them as actually kind of flat. Like there are certain ones that I really do like. Um, but I think of like oil paintings, like um, a much more, you know, I guess fine art, like traditional art as being very layered. Maybe it's just because I, I used to do some oil painting. Um, uh -huh. And so I know that it add you know, ha you have to go in and add more and more and, you know, mold things as you go. And that's more of what I love to, to look at and, that seems layered to me and very, you know, deep and colorful, obviously depends on the work, but, um, but I, I just thought that was interesting. Yeah, no, that is interesting. And may, and I think that maybe part of what I'm thinking of, I mean, certainly like a Jackson Pollock, if you look yeah, at, that's... if you're actually up close to an actual Jackson Pollock, like the amount of detail and layers there are really kind of like overwhelming in a really like, um, lovely way for me anyway, it's lovely. Uh, but but that is interesting because I also think that um, I've like I've done some studying of making abstract art and I've done some making abstract of ab abstract art myself and and it is actually made in layers like people like the artist will just like scribble on the canvas first and then put more stuff and often the first layers are completely covered over but the story is there and bits peek through and sometimes stuff gets scratched away um 
we one of the artists that I love the most that I've learned a lot about abstract art from who maybe we could show a few uh, um, examples of her art is named Pam Coey. Her art is really maximalist, I think, in the same way that I kind of love my my home to be. And I and she is especially somebody who um, talks about these multiple layers of creating the piece of art. So that it's not telling a literal story, but at least to the artist, there there are all these different layers of the making of it that are also telling a story. So, yeah, but it, again, that's so interesting that like I look at a sort of traditional, um, even like a really, uh, like a really traditional masterpiece, like a Rembrandt or something, and to me, they look kind of flat. <laughs> <laughs> that, I think that's so funny. I mean, maybe that's we're getting to the bottom of why we choose different colors and um, exactly. but, but feel the same about. Not, yeah, there's not enough saturated color. In them. <laughs> <laughs> I'm I'm looking at uh, yeah. So I'm looking at Pam Coey. Yeah, no, I, and I see that. I think um, you know, I think people say abstract art, and I. I guess I'm just thinking of some of the things that I saw in like, you know, museums in California, modern art museums in California that were to me like very stark, right? Like there, there is a lot of modern art like that. So, um, but this, this does look layered and, and molded over time. But, um, I think, I think that's interesting too. Cause I, although I understand that people, you know, who embrace minimalism, uh, you know, a lot of them obviously feel comfortable that way. I don't know why you would have your house like that if you didn't feel comfortable, but yeah, it's, it's, it's confusing to me. Um, you know, the, the fact that they don't have, uh, I don't they don't, they don't have stuff in their home that is, uh, like collected over time that, um, <laughs> how does it not feel like you're living in the doctor's office, you know, or the, yeah. A way to, I don't know. I agree. I agree. Um, well, and and I think you said something interesting and important, I think, which is that if, if that is really how people want to live and it makes them feel good, then obviously that's how they should live. And you said, and of course, they, it must make them feel good because why else would you live like that? And I, and I do think that part of, I think that some people really do. Um, there's one person in particular that I'm thinking of who I can't remember where I saw her, but she was just saying, I, I need my home to be just like monochromatic and, um, and with nothing on the surfaces in order to feel calm. She was talking about how she sleeps better in hotel rooms, you know, like she needs her house to look like a hotel room. Right. And and I do think that there are people like that, and I don't want to discourage anybody who actually has sort of investigated their own preferences and their own nervous systems in their spaces and has determined that that is what they actually want. But I would say that many people are painting their walls neutrals and grays because that's what the trendsetters say they should paint them. You know, and I do think that there are a lot of people who are very influenced by um, by trends. And and I also think that a lot of um, I mean, here we can maybe get into our a little critique of minimalism, (laughs) 
like a, a lot of minimalism is uh you, you know sort of driven by materialism and by the like if you if you live in a minimal space a, a minimalist not a minimal but a minimalist space that is decorated it has furniture it has paint colors um in the way that is sort of on trend right now when that trend changes you have to change your whole space you know yeah. um whereas with maximalism by definition uh the whole point is that you're constantly taking from different um eras and different styles and maybe like i actually am intrigued by trends and i like to follow what's trending um it doesn't make me want to go out and buy something but it's just interesting to me like it helps me understand what it is i like and um you know what i find meaningful and what what's part of that that's part of the story that i'm trying to tell uh but if you're a yeah. minimalist you're just sort of driven by trends it seems to me and by the need to sort of dispose of what you have and um and take on new stuff whenever those trends uh change which they do really frequently and so it it does seem to me that that minimalism in some ways for some people is really driven by kind of a capitalist imperative to consume yeah. more stuff you know yeah and i i think a lot of uh a lot of people aren't trying to embrace minimalism because it is it has been a larger trend over the last you know 10 20 years um and uh, and there are a lot of people that maybe it doesn't fit them but that's what they're supposed right. to have and um yeah it, it's interesting the di dichotomy there right like i think we can talk a lot about that you know the fact that you are you know minimalism is about uh embracing you know just not having too much stuff um you know not spending too much money on things uh traditionally but it really has lent itself to people having to sort of completely wipe out you know the whatever they have in their home, replace it with all the same line of, you know, furniture, all the same, you know, stuff from Target. That's, you know, the spring collection. Um, right. And it's, yeah, it's just, it's interesting, the, the dichotomy there. And I think uh, minimalism has been embraced also by the elite, right? Because right. Uh, it's, it's a lot more about, property values, um, what the like shell of your, you know, home looks like, uh, it, you know, can look like a museum. It is now a sign of, of wealth of like extreme wealth. Right. So, um, right. and, and I also think what's really interesting is that has kind of trickled down because there are more people now that are, sorry, there are less people now that own more property, right. Which leads itself to yep. a lot more people renting, um, and, and so even those spaces that aren't like these, you know, mansions that look like museums, even these apartment spaces have to look really kind of stark, white, gray, beige, boring, um, you know, because of that constant cycle of renters and renters want to have a nice space. So they embrace, you know, oftentimes they can't change the outside. Um, so they, they embrace these things. So I think it is a larger trend, but I don't think it's, you know, uh, necessarily something that's right for everybody. Uh, 
I think it's also like all of that lack of color, like has a history for a decade or so. The sort of tastemakers palette was all shades of gray. And now like the big revolution in interior design, it seems is that we've now switched to a warmer neutral palette, but now we're just looking at shades of beige like it doesn't seem to me that really much has changed like it's still just like neutral 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 all the time and i think that we have been fed this lie that um that neutrals define good taste that minimalism is elegant and tasteful and sophisticated and that color and stuff is sort of um garish and i don't know i think there's a class element to it this notion that it's kind of lower class to have stuff in your house um and i just really i also just really reject that although although what you were saying is true that like if you're going to decorate your house that way you know your walls are going to get like i've had houses with white walls and the walls get dirty when you have white walls and if you have beige carpet it gets dirty really fast and if um, i mean i made the mistake when i was um, furnishing an apartment um after my divorce of it's like a classic mistake of thinking that a beige sofa was the way to go because it would just be neutral and it would you know it would fit no matter what else new i got it would like you know match or fit in and so i bought this beige sofa which is now like the bane of my and i've only had it for like six (laughs) years it's like the bane of my existence because if you actually live in your home and actually use your furniture like kim kardashian must never sit on those beige love seats in her she just get it reupholstered with a like a slightly (laughs) different shade of beige or maybe the same shade of beige well and that's that's interesting too right because like i I, keep coming back to kim kardashian but that's a good point that you know in order to get the same color in everything like in order to get it to all go like that's a lot of custom stuff that you have to yeah to have too so yeah it does lend itself to being something that is really for wealthy and that has a historical basis too right this what you were getting at earlier is this um you know it's it's about class these uh embracing white beige uh it's not the first time that you see that in in history you you were talking the other day about um like classical greek sculptures right Um, we have this notion that they were white that they were white mm -hmm. marble it's it's class but it's also about imperialism and whiteness like race you know this notion that whiteness is equated with sophistication and taste and elegance is very much about race and um and one of the ways that the west has distinguished itself from other cultures that it has gone in and colonized <laughs> is mm-hmm. by by sort of characterizing the colorfulness of those cultures as being childlike, if not savage, at least childish and childlike and unsophisticated and inelegant. Um, But the thing, and the thing about the white statues is that that has for like, since the Renaissance, that was the standard. And it's not just statues. It's like buildings, the Parthenon, like all these buildings that are now 
white and that we think of as being made of white marble were actually extremely colorful. We're all painted in like bright, saturated colors, they think, but certainly in color. There's no dispute about that. Um, and so the irony is that the West has sort of based its racist, classist notions about the elegance um, and sophistication of whiteness, or at least of sort of neutrals, beige and gray and white and black, on this lie, this this misunderstanding, this misapprehension of classical Greek and Roman um, art, the the classical world was actually very bright and colorful, um, just like almost every culture, except. Um, in many ways, Western culture. Yeah. Yeah. Um, minimalism is embracing a lot of uh, things we would traditionally associate with like masculinity as well. Yeah. I think that, that there's several aspects of sort of the anti-maximalism um, sentiment, which are rooted in misogyny. And w one is this, yeah, this notion that women have often been excluded from high art and so instead have um part, you have participated in art and in making through sort of traditional crafts quilting um needlepoint like all sorts of things right and that collecting collecting you know chachkas and um and and dishware and whatever it is uh and displaying those things in their homes, right? And so I think that that those kinds of displays, those kinds of um, collections are often looked down upon because they're viewed as really feminine um, and yeah. womanly. But I also think that there's an element of um, the fact that, like, I just wonder in those stark, minimal homes, like, who cooks and where and with what, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and do they really put everything away every single night, you know, and like, who's doing the laundry in those homes and who's, um, you know, doing the stuff of homemaking and do they have children? Do they have families? Do they have pets? Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Do they go, do they go for walks and then take their shoes off at the end of when they come in, I don't know. Like, it seems to me that all of the stuff of homemaking, which is uh, again a really traditional female realm, um, is the stuff of maximalism. Often, you know. Yeah, yeah, and and I think you know there there has been you know some very intentional movements to. Um, I guess, get rid of that stuff, you know, make it seem less significant. And I think, so I was reading the other day, we're going through the situation where we're trying to figure out what to do with our kitchen because it's pretty small. And I'm starting to like these, uh, uh, what, what are they called? They're unfitted kitchens, right? Which I do think is somewhat of a, a trend. But uh <sighs> I can look through like the last hundred or so years of how kitchens have evolved. And you really can see that because 
a lot of the design was oriented around how women actually did cook. And, you know, you can kind of slowly follow that to now almost what is going to make like the most profit, right? Like our kitchens almost look like uh, today a bunch of things that are easily sellable and really expensive. Um, whereas, you know, you look at like a 1930s, 1920s kitchen and um, it's, you know, a bunch of these sort of antique pieces. Um, I think it's the like the Hoosier which, you know, was a very like just one piece of furniture that was kind of designed to do a lot of things, allow you to store things and, yep. and um, you know, make things. And so, yeah, I just think that's really that's really interesting. It's it's lent itself to, you know, getting rid of of that tradition. Um, and you look at some of the uh, you know best designers that that are maximalists out there and they really talk about you have to go back and you have to embrace um, you know, your, your female lineage, right? Like, um, you know, there's Ali Dodd talks about that. I always say to my clients, think of the female line in your family, what your mother did, what your grandmother did, what your great grandmother like did. I've never heard it's of that. It's still there. I, I want to keep that, you know, create that aspect, but in such a natural way that you feel as if it's there. Yeah. I really like that. I think a lot of modernism and minimalism is about, um, you know, getting getting rid of that tradition and going t to something that is more, you know, uh, for lack of a better term, rational. Um, right. Yeah. Easily reproducible. And that is that is a huge part of uh, the modern movement, for sure. Absolutely. It's funny that you mentioned a Hoosier cabinet, because I don't know if you know this about me, but I am, in fact, a Hoosier. Uh, and oh. a Hoosier is somebody who comes from the state of Indiana. In That's what I thought. States. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and yeah, Hoosier cabinets, like my daughter has one in her home that she inherited from her aunt. And um, yeah, Hoosier cabinet. She inherited the Hoosier. Yeah. A Hoosier okay. cabinet. I, she has one. And, and, but, but that's just like a, one specific form of that yeah. kind of furniture. Like it, in the UK, you have what are called Welsh dressers, which is basically the same thing. They call it a dresser, but it's basically like a cabinet for displaying your um, your dishes. You know, again, if you know your dishware would be a point, a real point of pride. Um, you know, for a homemaker, you would have collected beautiful things, and you would want to display them. Um, and so you have these cabinets that are built in order to display things. I have a, I have, you know, I have a couple of uh, hutches downstairs, one that's a sort of art deco hutch, and they all have like glass um, doors. And again, the idea is that you don't just want to store stuff, you want to display it. You know, you want to be able to see inside. So there's almost always, it's either open or there's glass. Yeah. Yeah, that's definitely all part of sort of a maternal um, female line of homemaking and family tending and all of that stuff, which just gets sort of wiped out in yeah. these. Like, again, I look at those kitchens that are so white and they have marble countertops and there's no appliances anywhere and i just know that those people 
spend all that money on their kitchen and then they get takeout every night. I know. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but that's the ideal kitchen, right? Like you, you can't, um, you know, make your kitchen look nice or, or do a remodel without spending, you know, twenty, thirty thousand $30,000 on the cabinetry Easily. all, all around, um, you know, four or $5,000 on the countertops, four or $5,000 right. on an Island. Like it, it's all, it's, it's almost all the same cookie cutter thing. And it's, it's a lot of money. Whereas you look back and, um, you know, there were women that were finding a way to really get all of that done and, um, you know, and embrace what they had. So I just think that's, that's interesting. And it's a good, it it was a good lens for me to look through thinking about, um, my kitchen. Uh, but you read, you read a book recently about, or by, uh, was it Lawrence Lewin Bowen? He, uh, he talked about that as well, right? Like it's, you know, a lot of this minimalism and, um, some of the early minimalist architects, like really kind of deliberately got rid of, um, traditional items. Right. Anything that like smacked of being feminine or decorative, like that was like decorative was a bad word. And we still, we still look down on that. We still look down on anything that's decorative. It's not real art. It's, um, you know, and like illustration is not as sophisticated as real art. And, um, yeah, and I do think that modernism uh, was very much a re- a reaction against some um, eras that were incredibly decorative, like Art Nouveau, and even um, Art Deco was a little bit less like sort of florally. But I think that like, and I think that it also um, like nature is also banished from these spaces, these minimalist yeah. spaces. You know, like you have, you don't have any florals, you don't have um, any carvings in the, in the wood and um, really expensive marble though. (laughs) Right. Lots of expensive marble. Like I've seen, seen white marble (laughs) where like, it's literally all like a bathroom. That's just all marble. And again, I'm like, to me, that looks like. I don't know, somehow institutional. Like it looks, I don't know. I just can't, I can't wrap my head around why people would really want to live like that. And I'm not, I'm not sure that a lot of people do, but there is this, um, to bring it sort of back to what we often talk about on this channel, which is sort of neurodiversity, right? Like there are these myths that, um, these bland, um, gray or beige minimal spaces are specifically what neurodivergent, especially autistic people want. I mean, this is like, I, I think I want to do a whole video on this because yeah. it makes me so angry. <laughs> this whole myth of the bland autistic, like it, I think that it, it's a, um, and you know, this could actually bring us into our conversation about Le Corbusier, um, <laughs> the notion, is that how you say his name? Corbusier. Yeah. I, I don't know if yeah. I'm saying that right. Le Corbusier, But there was yeah. an article that, that we all read that was um, suggesting that basically the whole history of modernism, like the whole 20th century was created 
to satisfy his autistic need for bare, stark spaces. I mean, it's just, it's ridiculous. It's like ridiculously reductive. But on top of that, it's just wrong. Like lots of autistic people actually love stimulation. You know, like... Yeah, and collecting things and... being surrounded by things that make them happy and their interest yeah yeah yeah. uh clutter clutter core is uh yeah (laughs) is becoming more and more of a thing yeah i'm so fascinated by this supposed the supposed trend of clutter core um and my first reaction when i heard that term clutter core was like no 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 that's not what this is this isn't about clutter i don't like clutter (laughs) i like you know, a sort of lived in but curated space that tells a story that's full of meaning. But I think that actually the more I've been watching these TikToks and videos about what the kids these days mean when they talk about Cluttercore, I think that I think that it is just basically maximalism. Like yeah. highly, highly idiosyncratic. Like it's about designing I mean it's everything that I believe in designing a space that is specifically and uniquely um, reflective of who you are, right? So it's just your stuff and the things that you love. Um, I, I'm just all about the clutter core now, now that I yeah. sort of understand it better. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, agreed. It's, um, it's certainly something I would embrace before uh, embracing all all beige, all white, everything. Uh, yeah. Um, what I think is really interesting about that article about uh, Lacabruzier is that, well, he, first he's like, I think most one of the most like widely loved and hated architects um, in history. And what people don't realize is that he kind of just sold himself out to like whoever... Um, you know, would, mm-hmm. would help him and support his ideas. Right. So like he was like trying to get anybody to, to get behind him, even like Mussolini. So, um, right. What, what's really interesting is that he, uh, I, I highly doubt it had anything to do with him being autistic. Um, what he proposed is sort of wiping out all of the like old traditional elements of how, you know, we lived and used space and implement a much more efficient, um, you know, sort of rational, productive style. And, um, and that like, you know, of course was very much embraced by, uh, industries that could make a lot of money off of doing stuff like that. Right. So more in line of what we see today, how efficient can we make things? Um, some of his like earliest designs were embraced in America in making public housing. So if you go anywhere to a city and you see these like um, buildings that look like a, like a plus sign from the top, um, that's typically public housing and you could see that directly in, in his design. So um, yeah, I just think, think it's really interesting. It's more so I think just been really em- embraced. Like he got very popular because he sold himself out to whoever would, you know, prop him up, but also, you know, it just uh, lends itself to, you know, the very, hyper-capitalist way we live today and yeah 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 that's interesting and um i i read that one article that was about 
how that was speculating that his design style was entirely influenced by his autism, his supposed autism. Um, and of course he was never actually diagnosed with autism. Yeah. This is just like armchair diagnosis. Yeah. Um, and that, and that, um, what's his name? The Bauhaus guy. What's his name? Gr- Gropius. Right. And then yeah, Gropius, Gropius, that his entire style was um, influenced by the fact that he had been traumatized in World War One, And it was such a reductive, well, first of all, reductive notion um, of mm-hmm. how a style emerges, right? Uh, but also really insulting because, again, this myth of the bland autistic, like the, surely there are autistic people like Le, Le, Le Corbusier. <laughs> We're calling him Corbusier. <laughs> Corbusier. <laughs> like, <laughs> like Corbusier, who, um, who maybe liked that kind of style and maybe yeah. it was associated with his autism. Who knows? But there's plenty of us who don't, you know? And mm-hmm. so to read, to sort of um, reduce it that way. But then I read another article and Jesse sent me both of these and I think you read them too, um, that rebuts that whole notion. And they pointed out that both of these men's styles had emerged, you know, very early on, certainly um, uh, Gropius, his style was very much already pretty settled by the time he was traumatized by the first world war. So it's not, I don't know. Like, I don't, I don't like uh, minimalism as it's, as it's uh, embraced today, because I do think that it's really bare and stark and unimaginative and it's driven by trends and capitalism and consumerism and by this false notion of kind of um, white sophistication and purity. But I, there's a lot of mid-century modern and even of like Bauhaus and um, all of that, that, that I don't hate. Like I oh, don't yeah. hate it at all. I don't think that I would want to live in it. <laughs> sort of like New mm-hmm. York city, you know, they say I'd like, uh, I love it, but I wouldn't want to live there. Um, I, I can see the beauty in a lot of that. And I, I don't think that we need to um, necessarily even disparage that whole modernist era to say that it's time for there to be space and room for people to embrace other sorts of styles, you know, without being disparaged as being just like cluttered and messy and over the top and um, like all of the things that are said often about, I think, maximalism. Marta, though, if we didn't decide on one thing that is good and the other thing is bad, then, you know, we wouldn't have the <laughs> the time to get our supply chain ready to exactly ship out all <laughs> this stuff that we want to push on people. So, uh, yeah, you know, you're absolutely right. I think. Well, and, and it's just like, again, like I'm sure there are plenty of uh, autistic neurodivergent people who are comfortable in, you know, very minimal spaces. Um, but it's it's kind of frustrating that it that sort of idea lends itself to the same sort of um you know awful stereotypes about you know neuro- neurodivergent autistic people like lacking feeling and you know right. empathy and and um 
and being, you know, sort of robotic. And that's just, that's just not true. You know, I think, um, there are, uh, styles are all over, all over the place, right? It's, it's really frustrating to attribute something, exactly. one thing in general, but something like that, um, Exactly, exactly. Just so, so based in like just really harmful stereotypes about neurodivergent people. Um, and I think it is true of both autistic, um, and, uh, ADHD people as well. I think that there's this notion that ADHD people have to live in a minimal space because otherwise they'll just be messy all the time, you know, and that they're incapable of maintaining a space that has actual stuff in it. Um, I think that that's the stereotype about ADHD people and about autistic people is that we prefer yeah. it. And I just think that both of those are wrong. I think that, I think that when you create a space that um, feels lovely and makes you feel happy and calm and um I was going to say cozy, but I don't even know if it's cozy for everybody. For me, that's like an important piece of it. When you feel right in your space, um, I think that it's more possible to maintain it in a nice way, you know? Um, no, I, I think you're absolutely right. And I think that, again, like maximalism is just about embracing it. So, you know, maximalism can really be about not, you know, denying entropy and, embracing the mess just you know just embrace it it's uh that's very adhd right like not necessarily having to be in control all the time like being like being okay with a little bit of chaos with a little bit of stuff right um yeah absolutely accepting imperfection i mean i think that those are all hallmarks of of uh maximalism and i think yeah. that those are all great ways of trying to be in our spaces as neurodivergent people. This has been the Spiral Lab. This episode was produced and edited by Jesse Meadows. Don't forget that this is a video podcast, so head on over to our YouTube channel and subscribe. If you enjoyed today's conversation, leave us a five-star review and share this episode with your friends. If you have questions, comments, or suggestions, you can send us an email at enterthespiralab at gmail.com. You can find me on Substack, where I write about design and disability justice at divergentdesign.substack.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.